and I think that just speaks to kind of what has been a theme almost throughout our chat so far is the fact that there doesn't seem to be that level of thinking about how we can actually increase investment in things at the moment in the long run. We're thinking short term still. And if there were to be that fundamental change of approach to um, business rates specifically, then that is certainly one way alongside some of the other things the government is doing to actually increase investment again in local areas which i know is one of the big things that boris campaigned on in 2019 which is actually trying to level up those um, left behind communities and i think if you were to reform it in that way and actually make people intangibly tied to the areas that their businesses are in then they're going to invest more in it because businesses are going to want to have um, the best properties to be working out of Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is John McDonald and I'm the Director of Strategy at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by our Head of Communications, Emily Fielder, and Darwin Friend, Policy Analyst at the Taxpayers Alliance. Today's podcast is a special edition in which we will be discussing the Chancellor's Spring Statement. And so, the most obvious question to start off with, Darwin, what did you make of the, of the Spring Statement? I mean, I think it was a very mixed spring statement this time. I mean, there were some welcome changes, which I'm sure we'll discuss, such as on taxes, so fuel duty, income tax, national insurance. But I also think it was a spring statement whereby there were a lot of missed opportunities. He could have made a few more announcements in terms of balancing the public finances, in terms of starting to resolve the issue with um, public sector debt. But um, at the moment, I think it's a bit mixed whereby he's, as I say, given with one hand and taken with another with some tax cuts, but also some tax rises planned ahead for uh, the next few days. Yes, I did want to point out that we used pretty similar language, not through coordination, but just through through similar minds thinking alike. Uh, we said the Chancellor would, what was it? The Chancellor giveth and the Chancellor taketh away. And you were saying he was giving with one hand and taking the other, which I thought was funny. In terms of what you think the Chancellor's priorities are with this budget, do you think it's helping those affected the most by the cost of living do you think it's balancing the books where what do you think the kind of motivation behind it is i think it is starting to try and deal with the cost of living crisis so as we saw the threshold for ni was increased by uh, i think three thousand pounds which is a welcome move because that's going to be saving i think everyone now earning i believe below thirty-five thousand pounds at least is going to be um, paying less tax even with the uh, national insurance hike coming um, in the next month. And so I think he's really going for that cost of living and trying to help people, in a sense, keep more of their own money. I think the concern that I have and the Taxpayers Alliance have is the fact that he announced three big changes, as I mentioned, income tax, national insurance and uh, fuel duty. But the impact those have on the tax burden alone or not alone, but combined, is actually less than the impact that the national insurance hike on its own is going to have on the tax burden. So as, as we mentioned, he is giving with one hand and taking it with the other. And it is welcome that he's doing those things. But I think he could have gone even further, such as abolishing the green levies to um, try and help with the uh, the cost of energy right now. But um, it's a start on the cost of living. And I just think he, he's got further to go. So with fuel duty in particular, I mean, do we think we should be in favor? Like, I don't know if the Taxpayers Alliance is in favor of the fuel duty cut straight up anyway. Do you think it's regressive at all? Or do you think it's just good to be in favor of tax cuts as and where we can make them? I mean, I think it's always good to be in favour of tax cuts whenever possible. I'm never going to complain too much about those. But this is actually something I th- um, the Taxpayers Alliance has called for in the past. We've mentioned um, a 5p cut in our single income tax 
publication quite a few years ago now. And I don't, I don't think it's a regressive thing. I think a lot of the talk post-spring statement was that this isn't really going to be benefiting people. And I think that's quite a, a London-centric approach that Westminster's been taking. I mean, if we look at the number of journeys taken by car, I think it's two-thirds of all journeys by car in this country. And so I think once we get outside of London, outside of the Westminster bubble, this is actually really going to be benefiting people up and down the country. And I don't think it's just that. I think it's the case that taking 5p off, that is being passed on by businesses. And that's going to not only help business, which a lot of businesses obviously have to commute via road to get things across the country, but it's going to be helping families, not only in terms of an economic perspective, in terms of getting to work, going to high streets to go and buy things and so on, but it's also just good so then they can go and visit their families. It's a bit cheaper for them to go and do those everyday things, which I think uh, was starting to obviously really become difficult because gas has gone up significantly since um, the crisis in Ukraine and since uh, oil prices have been going up generally. I mean, for me, it's quite interesting because we were having this discussion before we started the podcast in the office, I was saying that completely guilty of being A, a non-driver and B, in the Westminster bubble, I was saying that to my mind, it would help motorists effectively. And motorists, people who drive more tend to be more well off. And so this tax cut doesn't help people right at the lowest end of the income spectrum. But Emily also pointed out, as you have done, that that's quite a, a an urban centric view to take yeah i think i did some research on this actually after we had this discussion i think i found that on average those living in rural areas are paying up to 24 percent more a month on fuel for their monthly commute than those living in rural areas so this is a you know a symptom of rural isolation and decline in public transport so i think assuming that the car isn't an essential necessity for everyday life is a very London-centric point of view, for sure. And I think one other thing that the government could have done, which they didn't announce, I mean, it's it was welcome that it's going to be going on for a year rather than up until September, which I think uh, Rishi said was what the French government were doing. But if they actually just made this permanent, which I'm hopeful that they will do come March next year, is just say this is going to be a permanent cut because as we then see prices starting to drop in terms of fuel, then that should actually be a long-term benefit to um, taxpayers rather than just an initial help with the cost of living crisis at the moment. Quite interesting to see the Chancellor do temporary tax reform. Um, I mean, I don't know, again, what the TPA thinks of it, but we've been proposing for full expensing for factories or abolishing the factory tax, which he kind of did with the super deduction policy announced last year and then suggested it was time limited, I think, to the end of this year and is now in the spring statement suggested that they will revisit how to re-incentivize business investment in the long term, uh, but without really suggesting if it meant making the super deduction, which I think is 130%, taking that down to just simply full expensing or, or how they want to do it. Do you think that this shifting around of investment works? Do you think it makes sense to do sort of short term tax cuts? Or do you think that it, it, it makes more sense for the Treasury to take a perhaps a longer term hit to their revenues uh, in the hopes of boosting economic growth? Yeah, I think it's really, I mean, when we're talking about the kind of like the short term changes he's been doing, I think perhaps he's grown more confident in doing those, especially since the pandemic, because we've seen a lot of temporary tax changes he did then. We saw stamp duty amongst a host of other things as well. And so I think I can understand why he's deciding to do that, because as you mentioned, it will hit the Treasury's um, revenues it receives each year in the short term. But I do generally think that the government needs to be thinking longer than just the short term now and how much the Treasury can get in. It needs to be thinking about how it can stimulate growth again in the economy, because we're still coming out of the pandemic. We're not all the way back there 
yeah. And even when we do, we're only going to be back where we were in 2019 we, and 2020. We need to be actually getting forward to where we should have been if the pandemic hadn't have happened in the first place. And so I think those sort of super deduction policies, that's really welcome to encourage that sort of growth. But I think, again, what he's doing is kind of offsetting those temporary changes was then bigger, wider um, tax rise, which is tax rises, which is going to impact the effect that those super deductions and temporary policies can have, such as corporation tax is going to be going up throughout the rest of this parliament. That's going to stifle investment, which is fundamentally what the super deductions there for in the first place anyway. So rather than hiking taxes further than he needs to, I think he should really be going ahead and making these temporary tax cuts permanent so that then he's not only supporting individual taxpayers but he's supporting businesses so that then they invest in this country and support growth as we come out of the pandemic. I think it's worth bearing in mind that the OBR found that the tax cuts announced during the spring, spring statement account for roughly a sixth uh, of the overall rise that he announced since becoming chancellor so he's still very much a tax hiking chancellor rather than a tax cutting chancellor. Um, I wanted to turn our attention uh, to the dynamic modeling that the uh, TPA has recently done with regards to uh, taxation. So if I'm understanding this correctly, uh, you found that two thirds of the tax revenue generated from the national insurance hike would then be lost over the next few following years uh, due to sort of lowered tax receipts and lost growth. Yeah. So what this is, this is a model that we've done um, in preparation really for this spring statement in terms to look at the long term effects of tax changes. And so what the Treasury currently does is it models the impact that its um, policies will have in a static way. So it looks at essentially how much um, a tax change will either increase or reduce the amount the Treasury can bring in in terms of tax revenues. And now that's good in a sense because it shows how much the t- Treasury is going to be bringing in as a result. But what it doesn't actually acknowledge is the fact that it's not just sort of, well, the economy isn't static. There are wider effects to tax changes. If you're going to increase taxes on somebody, they're probably going to spend less as a result because they're going to have less in their own pocket at the end of every month. And so what we've done is create a dynamic tax model, which kind of looks at the changes um, that tax policies can have on the wider economy, on um, investment, on growth, on wages. And so what our model actually showed for the national insurance rise um, specifically is that in 10 years time, the economy is going to be £24 billion smaller than it would have been if the rise hadn't been put in in the first place. And alongside that, it's also showing £6 billion uh, worth of investment isn't going to be invested as a result, and that wages on average are going to be £5 lower per week than they perhaps would have been. And so what really it shows is the fact that when we put taxes up in this way, it's actually going to mean taxpayers are going to be paying double for the same thing. They're going to be paying through higher taxes for health and social care spending, but they're also going to be paying through lower wages. And so I think what the government really has to do is kind of shift its focus onto this sort of thinking, which it has done in the past, I should add. It used to do this for corporation tax, for example, when they did when uh, the Cameron government cut it in the early 2010s. They used this sort of modelling to see that actually when you cut corporation tax, the uh, amount of revenues you bring in goes up. And so I think if the Treasury shifts back to that focus onto a wider scale, then um, that will actually deliver more money for the Treasury in the long term through lo- through greater growth. What I was going to ask was dynamic modelling doesn't seem to be something that's particularly, it's not a particularly confusing or complex idea. It seems to be common sense. I was just wondering what we thought about why it isn't sort of de rigueur for the Treasury to think in these terms. 
I think specifically for Whitehall, they seem to have an inane focus on how much they can get out of people rather than actually the optimal amount they can get out of people. The whole idea of a Laffer curve in terms of taxation. And so and what I mean by that is obviously there's a certain level whereby you can set taxes where you optimize the amount you raise from them. And as soon as you go over that, then you start getting less revenue than you perhaps could have done and vice versa as well for when you go under that rate as well. And so I think they just seem to be too driven on the idea of, well, we need to make sure we're getting as much out of them to pay for all the, the spending commitments, rather than thinking actually in the long run, if we cut these taxes, we're going to actually get this amount of money in because we're going to have more investment in local economies from the individual taxpayers and more investment from in the UK economy from businesses because we're going to be a more attractive country to invest in, which will in turn have greater effects in terms of creating more jobs, which creates more taxpayers. And so I think they need to just think in this bigger sense of how the economy actually works rather than thinking in this kind of um it's just it's just not reality really when we think tax changes happen and that doesn't have any effect at all and so i think if they shift to a long-term focus then um they can see some more positive results so one last thing i wanted to to ask was about the short-term focus on the health and social care levy as it's been referred to when i talk to people about this what always happens uh, when I say that you should postpone the national insurance hike is people ask where the money is going to come from. I would like to ask both of you, is it a case of we do need to, to find the funding for that and that it has to be raised through taxation or it has to be borrowed? Uh, or are there alternative credible proposals? I think the argument now has become one whereby it's not the case of whether this spending should go ahead or not. I think people are respectful of the fact health and social care specifically does see, need money to um, help clear the backlog firstly, and then also after that fund social care. But I think what they need to do is rather than hike taxes up when we're already facing a 70 year high tax burden is actually find efficiencies elsewhere in government. I mean, today we've seen um, the Cabinet Office report that in 2020-21 alone, they found £3.4 billion of savings which they made. And so that's a significant amount of the £12 billion that's going to be raised by um, the national insurance hike alone already. And then, for example, us at the Taxpayers Alliance, we found previously £6 billion of waste in a single year alone, on top of all the tens of billion pounds tens of billions of pounds of waste during the COVID pandemic. And so I think there are alternatives to funding um, more spending from the government, specifically on uh, health and social care. And that's by finding efficiencies within the government already, rather than asking taxpayers to cough up more of the hard-earned cash. I actually had a question for you, Darwin, on what you're saying earlier about treasury mindset. Do you think that's why the government has kind of refused to address the issue of fiscal drag? Because I noticed that the RBR has noted the freezing income tax threshold will have for example, a greater effect than previously assumed due to higher inflation. So, for example, the freeze is expected to raise 17.5 billion by 2025, um, an increase of 4 billion from the previous forecast. But it's, So it seems that the government would have more wriggle room, but it seems that they haven't taken advantage of this. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a, the income tax freeze is quite an interesting one, really, because obviously fiscal drag is one of those things that isn't perhaps as well known outside of perhaps economists and um, people that focus on this area of taxation in particular. And so what it what it's seeing is that income tax rates are fro or thresholds are frozen. And then as people obviously earn more, then they're going to be pushed up into higher and higher thresholds. And what we're seeing, obviously, is inflation is at record highs. I think the Chancellor announced it was 6.2% at the minute. And so what he's actually going to be seeing and what the Treasury have clearly seen is the fact that wages are going to be going up 
at the same time as they're frozen the thresholds in income tax. And so that's, a again, quite a stealth tax, really, to try and raise more money from people without them really noticing because they haven't changed the rate itself. But I think what they really need to learn is the fact that eventually they're going to have to sort this problem out. I mean, wages, if they go up by inflation this year in the private sector, for example, that could be up to 7% higher. And so eventually they're going to have to deal with the problem of the income tax thresholds rather than continuing to delay it um, into the future. It was interesting for me to see our friends at the Resolution Foundation say that this wasn't really a stealth tax rise because freezing the thresholds had been announced beforehand. And I always think it may have been announced, but people don't really understand what it means. Freezing something doesn't sound like anything's being taken from you, when in fact, in, in real terms, it is. And to me, it speaks to a treasury mindset that is much more about collecting revenue first and questions of growth later, rather than one that's more interested in, in boosting the economy and then seeing how much comes back uh, in tax receipts as a result of that. Yeah, I mean, I agree, really. And I think I think we've kind of got into this mindset now. So much does have tax rises, I think, kind of uh, had a long term impact on the public is the fact that we are almost have to feel grateful now almost for a tax freeze rather than a tax rise. We see this all the time. I mean, the income tax threshold freeze is, is an individual case, but we see it all the time with council tax, for example. It's almost like if you get a freeze, that's almost as good as a cut. Well, it's welcome because it's not a tax rise. But it's not a tax cut either. It's kind of a middle in between, which is not really going to be having much of an impact for a lot of people. And in quite a lot of the cases, as we say, with income tax is going to be meaning people are going to be paying more. And so I think what the government needs to do, as we said before, is actually rather than trying these tactics of either increasing taxes or freezing taxes is just recognize the fact that you can increase revenues, as has been shown in the past, by cutting taxes. It doesn't have to be by swathes of the entire tax rate, but they're cutting income tax by 1p. That's going to have an impact because that's going to mean, for example, more people eventually are going to have more money in their pocket to invest in their local area, which will fit into the government's wider ideology of levelling up in the country. So talking about going for growth, John, you recently co-authored a paper about, um, you know, pulling out all the stops and going for growth. What do you think the Chancellor neglected to mention in a spring statement, which we think would have eased the cost of living? That's a very good question. I mean, it, it might not be a favourite of the Taxpayers Alliance, but we were considering, uh, in fact, we proposed that the government look into a single one off payment uh, to a means tested payment to households without a higher income taxpayer. Um, we think that giving people cash, so in this case, £500, rather than something like cutting fuel duty, uh, which would then be an expense to the government. So that's where you would find find the money for it, uh, might be a better way to get support to the lowest income households um, in a sort of a direct cash transfer, which might be able to alleviate you know, some of some of the issues around rising energy prices. But I'd, I'd be interested in hearing what Darwin's thoughts are on something like that. I mean, I think it's a, an interesting idea. As you say, I'm not sure necessarily um, I would agree with you on that. I think there are other alternatives for the government to be taking potentially. I mean, for example, one thing we've said is that we would preferably have liked the NI rise to be scrapped, but if not, to at least be deferred. Now, that would have been one way the government could have helped people because rather than lumping them with a tax hike during a cost of living crisis, that could have been at least deferred anyway until a future year, allowing people to keep more of that money in their pockets. But something we've also called for at the Taxpayers Alliance has been um, the government looking at the green levies that they impose 
on the energy companies. I think that's specifically one way they could deal with the cost of living crisis, especially with energy prices being one of the key factors that is causing such a sting on uh, people's pockets is because these environmental and social obligations, as they're officially called, account for, I think, 15.3% of the uh, average dual fuel energy bill. And so if they were removed, again, this doesn't have to be a permanent change, so then the government isn't being taken off its track for its net zero obligations or commitment. But if it was a temporary change now to support taxpayers through this cost of living crisis, I think that would be welcomed by taxpayers because 15% off their energy bill would be a good way to start in supporting them through uh, yeah through this crisis. I wanted to talk briefly about to sort of broaden things out to, to the cost of living crisis uh, and, and the spring statement outside of taxation. I was just talking actually at the TPA uh, about childcare and the cost of childcare. Now, I think we're probably all united in thinking that deregulating ratios of, of staff to children or children to staff uh, in nurseries um, makes a lot of sense to drive down costs. You know, we could adopt the Norway model. We have a, a ratio of, I think, one staff to three children. They have one of one staff to nine children. There's no evidence to suggest that, that their model uh, sort of is worse for children in any way, um, and from our calculations, would would cut the cost of childcare for uh, for people in the UK. And Darwin, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on 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 childcare particularly. Yeah, I mean, I think I actually wrote a blog about this oh, not that cool. long ago, a few months ago, specifically about how we can um, alleviate some of the costs on um, childcare because we do have in this country excessively high costs, as I think anyone with a child probably would. Um... Oh, sorry, no, I was just saying, I think it's the highest in Europe. Oh, the highest. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think it is actually. I think we found that as well. And I think part of the problem of that is when you do then compare us compared to other countries, it is the fact that we do then have these um, excessive regulations in terms of the ratios, um, in terms of the number of um, children each individual carer has to have. And so I think if we um, cut that even to meet in line with the European average, for example, I think that would be one way to at least make a start from the government to um, support those with children. Um, And so, yeah, I think those are the ways to do it, really, is the ratio is the place to start and then see how far that gets you and then see what else can be done from there. Um, Darwin, I'd be really interested to to understand your views on student loans. So the government's recently decided to reduce the student loan repayment threshold. Um, You know, I think it's a treasury mindset. Again, they're thinking it would save the government, you know, £35.4 billion. Um, Do you think this speaks to kind of wider intergenerational inequality that the government's failing to address? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, you mentioned the threshold in terms of when they have to start paying. And also, um, I believe at the same time, they announced the the amount of time you have to be paying back your student loan has increased as well. I think from 30 to 40 years, which, um, like I said, I think we would personally quite welcome quite uh, I think the reason we would um, really support that at the taxpayers alliance is because we've got to remember at the end of the day this isn't just sort of like back of the sofa cash or something this is actually people's money that they're paying to the government every year to then go and pay for people's um, higher education at university and they do expect a return on that eventually or for it to at least be starting to get paid back and so I think I do really welcome the government trying to um, challenge this because or get it deal with this challenge because I can't remember the exact figure, but I know it is well into the tens of billions of pounds that current public um, um, debt is for tuition fees. And I think trying to tackle that in any way would um, be welcome. I mean, I think that's something actually I'd be quite interested from um, either both of your perspectives is kind of um, how do you guys consider the um, 
not only just the threshold change, but also the fact that they're stretching out the time span. Do you think that's um, quite a good thing that they're, that they're doing? Yeah, I think that stretching out the the time span is fine. Um, the, so I think the loan should still be RPI adjusted, but I think that additional interest rates should be limited. So I think in that way, it could be fair to both the taxpayer and the students. But I'm not, not necessarily sure I agree with reducing the repayment thresholds at the moment during a cost of living crisis. It was interesting for me to see, uh, I think that by 2050, student debt would represent something like 20% of GDP if it continues on current trends. So for me, what makes sense in the long term is that we perhaps cut the amount of interest that is paid or get rid of it entirely and just index for inflation on student loans, but then make sure that they are repaid in full. To me, it doesn't make sense that people who don't even go to university are subsidized, are being subsidized by the taxpayer. That's that's really where I stand on it. Yeah, I mean, I was going to agree with you specifically on the interest rate rise as well, or interest rates in general for the um, for student loans, because I think when I was at university, it was about 6%. And so, I mean, in terms of actually then trying to pay that back, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a considerable amount of interest compared to what you could get, for example, any like, name me a savings account that you could get anywhere near six percent on at all. I mean, Bank of England interest rates, for example, are still below one percent, I believe. And so, I think it is rather unfair then for the government to be charging a six percent interest rate on around about let's say fifty thousand pounds worth of debt when it's pretty much unachievable for you to achieve that anywhere else. And so, I think, as you say, if you were if they were to increase that in line with inflation, then I think students would find that a fairer model. But at the same time, stretching out the time span that you pay it, and I appreciate for students at the moment, it may seem unfair to be unfair to lower the threshold. But ultimately, as John said, it is going to be people that older generations that perhaps haven't gone to university sometimes, and even current generations that are choosing not to go to university, that have gone straight into work, that are going to be subsidising those um, students to go to university. And fundamentally, I think they expect a fair deal for the taxes that they pay. So something that I, again, was just discussing at your office earlier today was this idea of ending the bias towards university students and being able to access these loans. I mean, to my mind, student loans are actually quite generous, especially if you were to, to, to sort of remove that inflationary aspect of them or, or, sorry, the interest aspect of them and just index them for inflation. Do you both have an opinion on something like a business loan for people regardless of whether or not they go to university. So in between the ages of 18 and 25, let's say, you could get quite a favorable loan, as I say, to start a business, perhaps not to put a deposit down on a house, crucially, which is what I think a lot of people would be tempted to do if the money were just free. I mean, that's not something I've actually ever thought about before, to be honest. And I think think one of the things that we should be doing, I mean, you mentioned a a business loan. I I kind of get where you're coming from with that. But I think my personal attitude towards that is rather than potentially then giving out more of taxpayers' money in a loan to everyone, perhaps let's make it a little bit easier on taxpayers so that then it encourages employers to get more people into work, to encourage more investment in our economy, for people to set up their own business. Let's Let's get taxes to that optimal level so that then it encourages people to go and do all of these things rather than potentially constantly having government or taxpayers money on at risk shall we say by giving it out in loans instead i mean i understand why the government decided to give loans for higher education but i'm not sure whether i would personally support um further loans mm-hmm. than going out for for everyone they're very risky yeah I and, that's a bit, and that's the thing i think if this was a private enterprise i would i would perfectly be happy mm-hmm. to say go ahead do what you think is 
do what you think is best. And then if you're willing to take that risk, then that's fine. But I just think when it comes to taxpayers money, we need to be making sure, as I mentioned earlier, when I was talking about wasteful spending, we need to be making sure that every single penny of that is being spent effectively and efficiently. So that then it's meeting the public's priorities that the government were talking about. And I'm not sure whether taking a risk in this way, whereby you would have very little assurance, perhaps, that you would be able to get any return on that money is the right way to approach handling public funds. Speaking of people's priorities, then, what would we think about, you know, more favourable loans or tax breaks for students who are studying certain subjects, for example, if they're studying in STEM? I mean, there are certain things. I mean, we've obviously got the bursaries, haven't we, for certain subjects and the government pays for the for the entire thing. I think that's certainly one way potentially that the government could address some of the skills gaps that we do have in this country. But I also think that's just about wider education personally in uh, in secondary schools and, and throughout the education system is actually promoting these areas to, for people to go into rather than them quite often being seen as, I, I don't know, potentially too difficult or sort of like cer- something only certain people can do. I think we really need to open up the opportunities for everyone in secondary education and, and say to as many people as possible that um, they can they can take whatever path they want to do and promote these areas rather than necessarily always going for a tax break. I mean, something that we've talked about a little bit, <clears throat> although not, I don't think, released as a, as a public policy is the idea that universities themselves should collect student loans such that for some subjects, are, they're probably more risky for the universities to keep funding in that way, right? So at the moment, there's no accountability framework for universities having lots of graduates in, you know, creative arts or, or gender studies or anything like that. Whereas if they were responsible for, for, for getting the loans back, then perhaps we would see a shift towards more profitable degrees. Yeah, I think that is that is a yeah, pretty valid point, actually. I mean, in terms of universities, from my personal opinion, it's the fact that they're given this money. It's pretty much the same for every single student, no matter what they do, and no matter perhaps career prospects outside of that degree after they've finished, and then they can spend that however they want. There's very little accountability in terms of how they really spend that money. And so I think if they were to be at least partially involved in um, recouping some of that from students in future, it may well have the impact that you'd want. Whether I'm necessarily 100% confident that that would change the mindset of universities, I'm not entirely sure based on based on what I understand. But I think it would at least be one way to increase responsibilities amongst vice-chancellors so that then they were actually responsible for the funds that they were receiving and potentially having to pay back in future rather than essentially it being seen as here's a lump sum of cash, go away and spend it how you wish and it's not really your responsibility at the end of the day, it's the government's. Turning back to the spring statement and kind of treasury policy more generally, I'd be really interested to know if you think there's any hope for abolishing or at least decreasing business rates in the long run. I mean, this is something we've really kind of focused on at the Taxpayers Alliance over a long time in terms of reforming the business rate system. I think the challenge everyone has is kind of what do you replace it with? And something that I personally am a big fan of is the fact of if you want to keep the business rate system as it is, in terms of the current model, then what we need to at least be doing is more rate revaluations so that then they're as up to date as possible, rather than perhaps relying on information which is three or five years old. If they were to do that on a more regular basis, at least, then that would at least give more accurate information in terms of how much people should be paying. Again, it would also be the case that if, for example, a business's value had 
gone down or a piece of land's value had gone down a certain amount, then it should be open for businesses to then ask for a rebate for how much they're potentially paying in business rates rather than continuing to pay the same level as they were before. In terms of them abolishing business rates, I don't personally see that happening at the moment, especially because I think in the spring statement, they did announce some more support for small businesses regarding business rates. But um, the aspiration would be at some point for them to have a proper focus on this subject so that then there is a fundamental reform to the entire area rather than tinkering around the edges and providing what we were talking about earlier as short-term policies, which will work for now, but in the long term, just delay the issue. So I wanted to quickly play the the Adam Smith doesn't like, well, yes, yeah, so it doesn't like landlord uh, landlord's card, which would be, to my understanding, business rates end up being a tax on landlords more than anyone else. The incident seems to be there. Um, and so to my mind, it's not perhaps the worst tax around, at least in terms of incidents. I appreciate in terms of ad- administration, it's quite irritating. Um, but I don't know if that was a, something that the TPA ever really looked into or, or saw as being correct. Uh, I'm not sure if it's something we've looked into specifically regarding the incidents of the tax, but I know something we have focused on is, for example, the fact of perhaps they could be in future, potentially one of the proposals the government could go for is maybe a land value tax instead and see how that goes instead. Because as you mentioned, it is kind of at the minute focused inanely on the building itself rather than what that building and business is actually on. And so I think if they went around it that way, then I think it would probably be a fairer system than the current than the current model. I would tend to agree with that. And I think the way it works at the moment creates strange incentive systems right where you're you're disincentivized from investing in the quality of your of your building right lest you push up business rates so circling back to the spring statement i'd be interested to know what you both thought about labor's response so do we think that their proposed policies provide any kind of meaningful or positive alternative well i mean it's quite interesting to kind of bounce off what darwin was just talking about is that there seems to be a lot of scope for Labour to, to take a slightly longer term view on things. And I've it's been interesting to, he- to hear from characters like John Ashworth about a sort of a high tax, low growth, low wage economy. And on that exact statement, I'm inclined to agree with him. My issue is often that Labour's proposals for fixing those issues. So we agree on the diagnosis, the solutions, the prescriptions, unfortunately differ quite a lot, uh, is that they come out with things like windfall taxes. That seems to be a a sort of a Blairite staple that's been reintroduced by this incarnation of, of the Labour Party, which from our, our perspective is is damaging to the business environment. Um, but again, uh, Darwin, if you have any thoughts about where Labour is sort of trying to orient itself uh, in relation to taxpayers at the moment. Yeah, I mean, annoyingly, you've kind of stolen everything I was going to say, John. But, um, <laughs> but no, the, the tone from Rachel Reeves was actually kind of where I am at, really. I mean, it was talking about we need to be going for growth, talking about the fact that growth under the Conservatives so far has, I think, been 1.5%, she was saying, compared to 2.1% for during the last Labour administration. I think that focus on growth is a good thing. I think the idea of scrapping the NI rise, as I've said, that's a good thing. And talking about a low tax and high growth model is the right approach. But again, as you said, it's the fact that they've then got completely wrong how you actually implement that in terms of policy. I mean, the idea of going for a windfall tax at this time is astounding, really. I mean, that's going to obviously be on the profits that that energy companies are making, but they will just increase prices as a result, meaning that it doesn't help the taxpayer really at all. 
And so I think what they need to get, do now is build on this positive tone that they've been having of being lower tax, talking about the tax burden at a 70 year high, and actually now implement that into their economic policy by thinking, as I say, long term about what they can actually do to boost growth in the economy. So that then we're back on uh, back on a level keel. I mean, to my mind, the sort of abolishing the factory tax or or keeping full expensing is an open goal for Labour. It's very much beneficial towards their sort of heartland seats, um, given that it favours, you know, machinery uh, or industrial businesses much more than it does kind of the knowledge-based economies in the South. And we forget that those are, are actually where the Tory heartlands are. So if Labour wants to claw back support where, where they so famously lost it in 2019, you'd think that they would they would adopt those kinds of policies. Yeah, I mean, when we look at the like the 2019 voter base, I mean, it's now the Conservatives and the Labour Party are fundamentally going after the same type of voters, at least. And I think what the Tories have done since 2019, as, as we've mentioned, is implement a lot of temporary policies, which would actually be not only beneficial, but popular if they were enacted in the long term, fuel duty, as you mentioned, factory tax as well, and think and things along those lines. If they were actually, if either party is willing to kind of pick up the gauntlet and um, kind of push ahead with them, rather than just, as I say, put them in for a year or two and then take them away later. And so I think that there's an opportunity for both parties really at the minute. Rishi, in terms of the fact that he has put taxes up a lot, he's got the opportunity as we build into the next election to actually cut taxes and prove kind of the physical conservative that he really is. And Labour's got that opportunity to really show that what they're interested in is the fact of lower taxes, higher growth and supporting families up and down this country through a cost of living crisis. I mean, I I, I saw someone say once that the best place to be as a sort of a think tank or someone who wants to influence policy is not to kind of pick a party and, and influence things from there, but to have both parties fighting over the agenda that, that you want to see. And what you just laid out would be very nice, actually. It would be very good to see kind of both Labour and Conservative parties trying to address those concerns. Yeah, I mean, and what has been quite welcome in recent weeks, especially since um, kind of inflation has been rising, is the fact that both parties have really been talking about the cost of living and the tax burden. We've heard it at Prime Minister's questions. We've heard it in other sessions as well, talking about the 70-year high tax burden. And I think there is now that recognition, at least amongst parties, that the tax burden is at a record high and that it now needs to start coming down. I think what they now need to focus on is actually the big picture policies which are going to deliver that. And it may not be a single tax to deliver that one thing, but it's the entire economic uh, platform, really, that they need to focus on. We've mentioned the corporation tax increase. We've discussed income tax. We've spoken about national insurance. There are lots of areas which both parties can focus on, which will not only, as I say, support taxpayers, but actually be a benefit for them electorally, because these are popular policies now. People are really starting to feel the pinch in their pockets from the fact that their pay packets are going to be going down from next month, not only from central government taxes, but also council tax as well. And what they really need now, taxpayers, is support through this crisis. And I think whichever party wants to pick up that mantle, no matter which it is, will really reap the rewards from that in future. Well, on that note, I would like to draw this podcast to a close. Darwin, thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful. Emily, thank you as well. And don't forget to tune in uh, probably next week for the next edition of the Pin Factory podcast. Thank you so much.